Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Hello and welcome everybody to our TIFF Talk. Thank you for joining us. We're very excited today. We have a very special guest from Europe. We have Dr. Rehan Hadri here with us today. Dr. Hadri, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, Andrea. Hello to the team. Uh, what an absolute pleasure uh, to, to be on this TIFF Talk. So uh, really looking forward to it and thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. So before we start, I do want to remind everyone this is a live event. Uh, you'll notice I have uh, someone sitting here with me. So I'm Andrea Millers with Endogastric Solutions. I am the Senior Director for Marketing here. And we also have Wendy Prophet joining me today, who is uh, the Market Development Manager uh, for uh, the East Coast here in uh, sorry, the U.S., if you will. So Thank you, Wendy. She will be helping with all of the questions that come in live. So at any time, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them into the chat section and we'll do our best to get uh, questions. I will tell you, Dr. Hadri did ask me to call him Rehan by his first name. So it's going to be very hard for me to do. But if you hear me call him by his first name, he requested that I ask it. Before we start, I do want to give you a little background on uh, Dr. Rehan. Uh, Hadri. He is a consultant gastroenterologist and interventional endoscopic uh, endoscopist, excuse me, at University College Hospital in London and also Cleveland Clinic, London. He leads the upper GI interventional and endoscopic unit. His main interests are therapeutic and innovative endoscopic. In particular, he has focused his interest in pre-malignant and malignant disorders of the upper gastrointestinal tract with a particular interest in Barrett's neoplasia, squamous neoplasia, and esophageal cancer. He has an academic position of associate professor at UCL, where he supervises his team to generate research into the endoscopic techniques and procedures he carries out to improve and streamline the care that they give to their patients. His research is focused on existing and novel endoscopic imaging technologies for detecting early cancers such as artificial intelligence. His other main research focus is minimally invasive techniques for treating cancers of the upper gastrointestinal tract and continues to lead and be involved actively on several national and international clinical trials in these fields. Dr. Hadri has offered the TIF procedure since 2019, and he was the first endoscopist in Europe 
to perform the TIF 2.0 procedure. So again, Rehan, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, we really appreciate you being here. No, an absolute so, pleasure. We look forward to it. Thank you. <clears throat> and so we're going to go ahead and start our program. Um, the first thing we kind of like to ask um, and have you explain is what is GERD? What are the types of symptoms that patients would be um, feeling or experiencing if they were? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Andrea. So, so listen, uh, gastroesophageal reflux, um, GERD or GORD as we call it here in, 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 in England, um, it's a you know it, it's a common phenomenon in, in in Western adults. You know most of us are allowed to have a little bit of transient reflux um, on a, on a monthly basis, but where it becomes a problem is where it occurs on a more frequent basis. So essentially, what is happening is that that our stomach, which sort of sits just under here under our diaphragm, is it's quite a hostile part of the GI tract. You know, it's full of acid, it's full of bile, it's full of pepsin. Um, and on the whole, the trajectory of all of that stuff should be going north to south. And what happens in acid reflux, not just acid reflux, but also non-acid reflux, is all of that stuff, the bile, the acid, the pepsin, it comes back up north into our esophagus. And that's what will give us the symptoms, Andrea, that a lot of folks will, will, will see their doctors with, you know, the, the, the sort of textbook symptoms, heartburn, a sort of, you know, a burning reflux type sensation in their chest. Some patients will even get acid or a sour taste in their mouth. Um, some people will regurgitate, not just the liquid, but food. They'll have difficulty swallowing. I see a lot of patients who come and see me with none of those symptoms and they'll have quite, um, you know, quite different symptoms like a lump in the throat or a sore throat or a, a chronic cough or a disturbed sleep. So, um, so it's a common problem and, uh, you know, it can affect all of us in, in so many different ways. I thank you for that. So many different ways. I thank you for that. We appreciate that. You did mention the non-acid reflux. Uh, we call that over here sometimes um, patients will say LPR. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah, for sure. It, it's, you know, LPR is, it's a universal term for, for what we call laryngopharyngeal reflux. And what, what I try and, what I try and get the patients to understand is, is actually reflux of acid and non-acid is, it's, it's a basic issue with the plumbing in our esophagus and our stomach. So the junction between our gullet or our esophagus and our stomach is there's this preconception that there's a valve, but there's no such thing. All there is, Andrea, is there's a ring of sort of circular muscle that sits there. And in the resting state, as you and I are now talking, that, that muscle is in a state of what we call high pressure. It's, it's, it's closed. So when we swallow consciously or subconsciously, our brain tells those muscles to relax and it allows food and mucus and liquid to go down. The, what what underpins the the issue in all reflux, acid and non-acid, is that 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 muscle gets weak over time, um, and there's lots of things that can contribute to it. So basically, what happens is that liquid, acid and non-acid, will come up, will give us the sort of characteristic symptoms, but will also not just the acid, but the vapors from that acid and non-acid can irritate the back of your throat, 
and a lot of those LPR symptoms that you talk about will will, will present and can be a real impact on you know people's quality of life on a day-to-day basis impact on you know people's quality of life on a day-to-day basis sure yeah perfect thank you for explaining that that's great uh so you know what do you normally uh tell patients to do or what is to, to manage their GERD you know obviously before it gets to a point where medical therapy or if and or if they had need a procedure you know there's the lifestyle changes and yeah, you know, I think the first thing in, in medicine, which we were all taught, is is sit and listen to your patient. You know, nothing beats a good history because we mustn't be over-treating patients, you know, uh, and, you know, really understanding why they're there. You know, before you label them with reflux or put them down that sort of chain of events, it's really important to understand why they're there, what's affecting them, chest pain, problem swallowing can be a lot of other things that we need to decipher and make sure. And then once you're once you're comfortable that your your clinical history taking is 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 confirmed reflux, then simple things, you know, the low-hanging fruit here, guys, is you know, simple lifestyle changes, you know, um, uh, from you know how we eat, when we eat, our portion size, um, you know, small meals more often. Uh, giving ourselves a good couple of hours before we have our evening meal and lying down, um, reducing weight, um, you know, anything that's going to push your intra-abdominal pressure up on your diaphragm. That's why pregnant women in the first and second trimester get reflux is they're mimicking what's happening to the Western world. We're all getting obese. Um, cutting out smoking, we know that nicotine, we know uh, that alcohol will reduce the, the pressure in that valve. Uh, we know that certain foods, for example, carbonated drinks, um, uh, will, will, inc- will, will decrease the pressure in that valve. And we also know that there are certain foods like fatty foods, there's a little bit of evidence they increase, not so much reflux, but the, the sensitivity to the reflux. So, so that sort of stuff can, can, can make a big impact on people's symptoms just by them tailoring their lifestyle um, and that will avoid them then having to go on to medical therapy and and ultimately end up in 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 my room with a with a TIF procedure on on the cards. Cards. Right. Right. Perfect. Thank you. So, can you talk a little about a little bit about what types of diagnostic testing do you do to determine if a patient in fact does have refractory GERD or is at that point where they need to go beyond you know that the lifestyle changes or or the food of yeah look i think that you know we um have to be cognizant of the fact as clinicians in this space that we i talked about overdiagnosing patients we mustn't underdiagnose patients because we know that chronic acid reflux in a small proportion of patients will predispose to something called barrett's esophagus which is a precancerous condition so we need to make sure that we find these patients uh, and Andrea, the reason I say that is because, you know, most of my work is in the esophageal cancer space and we've got a lot of work to do there still. You know, this is a disease that still carries a poor prognosis. We need to intervene early. So answering your question, you know, after a good history taking is, I think, an upper endoscopy, a gastroscopy or an endoscopy to, to visualize and interrogate the, the esophagus, the health of the esophagus to make sure that there is um, what we call esophagitis. It's basically inflammation of the esophagus. Um, 
over time, the esophagus can get narrowed. It can create something called a stricture or stenosis. And then also to look for something called a hiatus hernia, which a lot of patients with reflux may have. And, and a hiatus hernia in English basically means that your diaphragm, which sort of separates your chest from your abdomen, a little bit of the top part of your stomach pops up and it herniates and you get this sort of redundant piece of stomach which will just accumulate food and liquid and bile and acid and that will just predispose to acid reflux. So that's the first test to do is to make sure the anatomy is okay, take biopsies and, and give your patient a baseline. And then Andrea, in the patients that are still suffering, um, what we want to do is we want to label their reflux. We want to quantify it. And one of the things we do is we, we measure how much reflux is coming up. Um, we do that either uh, with the probe that goes through the nose and it sort of sits in your in your esophagus. I've had one. I, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't too bad at all. One of my fellows did it on me. Um, and the other way is a, is a pH probe that sucks onto the esophagus called a Bravo, which measures for 96 hours. Um, and Andrea, the, the point of this is to give the patient, um, put the patient in charge of their, their, their sort of destiny. And, and what I always say to them is this test will tell you how good or how bad your reflux is. You know, if, if the pH probe comes back and actually the percentage of time in reflux is not too bad, we can reassure them that, you know, lifestyle changes, the few antacids will help you. But don't worry. When you get those symptoms, you're not dying of cancer. Conversely, if it comes back really high, they're the ones that we just need to focus our attention on. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Um, I believe we have a couple of questions that have come through. Wendy, do you want to? I'm going to pass yeah. it over to Wendy to get those questions asked to you. So we have Lynn asking if GERD can heal on its own or um, also if if it doesn't, can it worsen and, and what can it evolve evolve into? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Wendy. So Lauren, absolutely. You know, the um, what what GERD causes is two things. One is it gives you the troublesome symptoms that impacts on your quality of life, which is obviously what you're worried about and what I'm worried about. But I'm, what I'm most worried about is what you're not aware of is the damage it may be doing to your esophagus, that irritation, that inflammation. That's what we're concerned about, and absolutely it can heal. So if you turn your esophagus from an acid environment to an acid-neutral environment through the lifestyle modifications, through antacids, through drugs that we can talk about which reduce the amount of acid in your stomach, absolutely you'll achieve healing. The worry is, Lauren, if that doesn't happen over the long term, then that healing inflammation, healing inflammation can predispose to some of the changes. But right, right. Thank you. Thank you. So can we also I think that's a nice segue into the medical therapy that you touched on. Could you could you talk to us a little more in detail about what that protocol looks like, what you recommend? Yeah, for sure, Wendy. So again, you know, <clears throat> I'm a I'm a big believer of, of less is more. Um, you know. We, we we mustn't you know we have to be pharmacovigilant in this day and age and so the the cheap and cheerful options are what we call antacids so alginates you know in our country gaviscon uh, pepsibismol um, peptac that sort of stuff um, and all that does is it does two things it, it neutralizes the acid so it's a quick fix for the burning symptoms of the heartburn or the 
or the indigestion. And the second thing is the alginate in it creates like a little barrier on top of that pool of bile, acid, food, and it sort of stops things from coming up. So, um, but that that's a that's a, a, a reactive intervention. Uh, a slightly more proactive intervention, Wendy, would be to reduce the amount of acid that your stomach is making, thereby reducing the amount of acid that's available to come up. And the two drugs that have been used um, are called proton pump inhibitors and um, uh, uh, H2 antagonists. Now, basically, what those two types of drugs do, they're, they're two sort of pathways in the stomach that re produce acid. And what those drugs do is they, 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 they block those receptors and stop <clears throat> the production of acid. So, you know, you would have heard of drugs like omeprazole or lanzoprazole or, or zantac, ranitidine, famotidine, um, a lot of which now we buy over the counter, um, you know, over the counter drugs. And, in, you know, in, in a controlled manner in the l short, medium term, they will control the symptoms of acid reflux and as importantly they will improve the health of the esophagus. Yeah, Rehan, you're actually talking to two people who take both. <laughs> PPIs, I was on, I'm on it daily. I don't know if you're on it daily anymore, but uh, yeah, we we are very aware of PPIs unfortunately. I made a couple of the lifestyle modifications that we don't love to talk about, but I did it and, and I'm Yes, I'm I'm not on the PPIs any longer, but every once in a while I have a need for a, you know, a, an H2 blocker. Yeah. But you know, that's such an important that you make, Andrea, is that you know we, you know, it, this is a Western problem. You know, it is a it is a it's a catalyst of the fact that um, a lot of people on on this call today are doing exactly what you guys are doing. You know, you're you're juggling a lot of different balls. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the questions a lot of my patients ask me, does stress cause acid reflux? Now, there isn't a randomized control trial to say that that is the case, but hell yeah, of course it does. Um, you know, that, 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 that's, that's, you know, anecdotal um, advice that, um, of course it does, but I haven't got a great cure for stress. Otherwise, I wouldn't be on this call. I'd be on a big yacht in the Caribbean, but all of or those things. <laughs> With giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so do we have more questions? Thank you for, for mentioning that. It is well, and yeah. actually, what I'd kind of like to do as well is just talk about you know, when is it time for somebody who is taking medications to see somebody um, to, to just get a little more information on what's really going on on the inside? Because we talk about how important it is that you really want to see, you know, for yourself what is happening to that lining of the esophagus, and then also. Um, after you touch on that, would you mind talking about what you do for patients with non-acid reflux and what is on that? Yes, uh, gosh, two pretty pretty tricky questions. So the first one, um, you know, it, it's it's a dynamic conversation with your with your patient to make sure that you're meeting their expect expectations. But the the things that you look for are patients who are compliant with their lifestyle modifications compliant with the medications still having symptoms um they're the ones that we just need to up the ante to make sure that um we do one of two things one is we we can escalate the dose of their medications we can add in a few extra medications um or in a few patients where that's not the case 
we can consider procedural intervention to try and you know tighten that plumbing and and that needs to be done in a in a really careful way and that we you know we don't want to be sending patients off for intervention unless they absolutely need it but there's so many different factors that need to be taken into consideration age other health factors uh, compliance with medication and you know one of the things that has been in the press rightly or wrongly over the past 10 years is um all of these meds that we've talked about that you know you and i pop fairly frequently there is some evidence um that they do come with a bit of baggage and we just have to be vigilant of the patient's expectations because the, the bottom line is is that these drugs are safe in the short term there's no doubt about it otherwise we wouldn't be allowed to give them and but you know the there is a bit of noise in 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 the press in scientific journals that that suggests that the long term use of these drugs um, in moderate doses can predispose to um, uh, a few conditions and it all stems from you know we need acid in our body our gut needs acid so you know intuitively of course if we're suppressing acid over a long period of time the rest of our gut that's further south will suffer and and i see a lot of patients who've been on these drugs with um with with SIBO bacterial overgrowth bloating um and then there's also it, it can increase the permeability of your gut so you see some patients with magnesium deficiencies which can be quite tricky to manage um and then there is also some some evidence about the fact that because um of the decreased gastric acid you're decreasing calcium um and this can be predisposed very very slightly and the data on this is conflicting to bone fractures and osteoporosis so patients know about this you know they they will challenge you and it's our responsibility to be able to face that up to them but also what's the risk of, of erosive esophagitis to the esophagus so there's a risk benefit here the second part of your question which is non-acid reflux gosh that's a difficult one to test um you know i don't have a great test for that um, and that will come uh, through, again, history taking, through um, make, you know, th there are some, some studies like impedance, for example, which look at, you know, almost uh, pressures of the, the proximal esophagus. Um, and in these patients, we know that, that, that pills like the PPIs and also interventions tend not to do so well. So it's all about patient selection and making sure you're not missing anything. Good point. And I think um, for me, I mean, personally, uh, I'm concerned about taking it so long, right? You know, my I go back to my doctor, just my, my, you know, just regular doctor, and they just keep saying, yeah, just keep taking it. If it's working, just keep taking it. And at what point, you know, do you say, I can't just keep taking this. I'm starting to worry about, you know, dementia, osteoporosis, whatnot. I'm getting older and I don't want to get, you know, 20 years down the line. And you know, not do anything about it. So I think this is one of the great things that we're doing today and with other physicians and every Tuesday, um, our TIFF talks, um, just to, you know, build awareness around uh, GERD and, and the options. So that kind of goes into our next um, segment, talking about what are the kind of options after lifestyle modifications, after, you know, medical therapy, 
then what? Can you please go into detail a little bit about what are the options to actually treat uh, treat GERD instead of just, you know, minimize, yeah, yeah. minimize symptoms? So, you know, Andrea, it's it's a it's an interesting concept as a as an endoscopist in this space up until you know, five, six years ago, you know, we, we weren't really present other than to make a diagnosis or at the very other end where there was catastrophe to deal with the outcome. Um, because there was this very sort of binary approach to managing tablets. Um, and in those in whom we'd done our due diligence and there had reflux is then an, an operation. And, you know, it, it, it's called a Nissan's fund obligation. It's done laparoscopically and will remain the gold standard for some patients who need it. But patients with really bad reflux, patients with big hernias. Our surgeons are so good at doing this procedure. Um, and it's safe. But like with everything we do in medicine, it, you know, it comes with, with side effects. You know, bloating, um, dysphagia, not to 10% of patients. But absolutely, for some patients, to protect their esophagus they need that operation and you know my conscience is clear putting them in front of the, the whites of the eyes of a surgeon but what's the space that's opened up which is you know kind of why you and i are here is that 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 bracket of patients who, who who haven't got the big hiatus hernias who've got terrible reflux who've got r symptoms that are impacting their quality of life and that's where the endoscopic options come in um, and historically, there were ablation techniques for, for reflux, but, you know, really the, the evolution of, of the endoscopic fund application with the initial TIF and now the 2.0 means for our viewers here is we're able to mimic what surgeons do in, in, a, in, a, in a less invasive, the, the, the word we all use is minimally invasive way, through the gastroscope like you would have had at baseline, to basically create that wrap, we're able to take your stomach, wrap it around your esophagus, your gullet, and also if there is a small hernia, pull it down and, and, and create a new valve. In, in 30 minutes, you go home that same afternoon. So, so the answer to your question is the, 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 the therapeutic options have opened up to us. And it's, it's, it's all about, you know, it's great for the patients. Love that. Love that. I love it. Thank you. I do see a couple of more questions popping up, so I'm going to pass it over to Wendy to Thank you. ask those questions. So Maria is asking, um, I, I've suffered for, from GERD uh, for many years, uh, 12 in total. I've been on PPIs for many years as well. Now the symptoms have changed. There's no more burning sensation, but I do have increased phlegm um, and a lot of clearing of the throat and difficulty swallowing. I stopped my PPIs because I'm trying to control them with diet. Could I benefit from a tip? Uh, hey, thanks, Wendy. Hi, Maria. So listen, um, you know, first of all, listening to your symptoms, I don't think there's anything to worry about. You know, nothing you've told me makes me want to, you know, endoscope you tomorrow. Um, 12 years is a long time to have acid reflux. And, you know, as soon as your symptoms change a little bit, that's when we just need to be a little bit more cognizant of, of making, you know, making sure we're not under treating you. So if you've had a bit more phlegm, a few issues swallowing, Listen, I'd engage pretty, you know, pretty soon with, you, with one of your docs and get them to put a scope down, but also encourage them to try and measure how much acid's coming up, especially now you stopped your drugs, because you know that'll give you the information you need to make an informed decision as to whether you need. You know, TIF may be an option. Very good. Thank you so much. Any more questions, Wendy? Well, um, 
just in, in getting back to some of the discussions we just had, we do have physicians, you know, uh, patients report, my doctor says I can just keep taking my PPIs, but I've heard it's not good to stay on them for a long, long time. Do you have a, a, a certain time frame or a dosage or a frequency that you recommend once, once they've reached that point or saw, uh, symptoms, when it's time to really see somebody and seek a different type? Yeah, Wendy, big, uh, that's a big question. And um, again, you know, the variables that, that inform your decision making are, 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 are not finite here. There's, you know, the, the, the patient age, the symptoms, the, the comorbidity. But um, ultimately, the key here is to protect the esophagus. And I go back to what I'm saying is that if patients are on this for more than 12 months and still symptomatic, they should probably be hanging out with a GI just to make sure that we've done our due diligence. And, you know, our, our job is not to tell patients what to do. It's to to tell them exactly what's going on, give them the information, and then help them to make the right decision uh, with 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 the correct information. So, um, so yeah, that 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 that's our duty, really, really. Thank you. Then I have Muhammad asking, can we have GERD even with the esophageal manometry test showing that the esophagus and the lower esophageal sphincter are working normally? I also did impedance pH monitoring and it showed abnormal acid reflux. Hey, Mohammed. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you don't need to, to have a hiatal hernia or, uh, you know, a, a low pressure in your lower esophageal sphincter. If you've had the correct investigations that show pathological acid reflux that falls above the, the parameters then, that we've set, then, you, you know, you fall into the category for a discussion about lifestyle medication uh, and, you know, hopefully never, you know, procedural intervention. Excellent. Also a great one from Haley. Uh, what do your TIF patients say to you in post-surgery follow-up? Um, so uh, thanks, Haley. So that's sort of 20 to 30 minutes, not very much because they're, 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 they're still recovering from the anesthetic. Um, but, but on the whole, Know, the recovery from this is so quick so so most of them are back you know back at home back at the offices within three or four days and the i suppose the one thing that, that the positive feedback is gosh that was actually really easy i was so anxious i thought it was going to be a big operation um uh and and and, and i suppose the negative thing is for the first day it, it is a bit sore and we we put you on a little bit of what I call baby food for the first seven days. Everything's a little bit thin and pureed just to protect the esophagus. So I, I get a lot of kickback from them saying, you know, how dare you? But um, at about three months, that's all forgotten and we're friends. And on the whole, you know, the majority of my patients that I've had the pleasure to hang out with have, have had a good outcome. Perfect. You know, what, can you talk a little bit about, we didn't get into that yet, but talk a little bit about what um, post post-op looks like. One of the big questions we get from uh, patients is, you know, what kinds of foods do I need to eat? They always hear about the diet and they're always worried about that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you prescribe to your patients after they have the TIP procedure as far as diet um, and then also exercise and how quickly can they go back to work um, after the procedure? Yeah, Andrew, I think that's a really important question. We spend so much time talking about what happens before the procedure and about what happens in the procedure. We sometimes don't focus on what happens outside the procedure. And I have to say that I've learned as I've gone along 
when I started off, I was very cautious because some of the guidance that I um, borrowed from my US colleagues, uh, it's pretty harsh, actually, you know, the uh, the amount of time that patients have to be on, you know, um, a sort of thin period diet. And I think the one thing I learned from having done it is how 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 let how how minimally invasive it was in terms of also the recovery period by a week most folks were fine so i've tailored that on a patient patient uh, approach but in essence for the first sort of two weeks folks you're going to be on um you know thin stuff broth soup nothing with solids and then you're going to titrate that up um, and what i say to them is be sensible your body will tell you when you're ready but honest with you i don't follow a lot of the very stringent diet plans, most of my folks within 12 months are back to eating pretty normally. Normally, Nice, nice. And then what about getting back to, you know, their day-to-day? Um, and then from there, you know, a lot of uh, patients are pretty active. Um, and I think some of the reasons why they have a hernia, you know, just, you know, they need to get their, gosh, what am I trying to say? get the TIF is because have the large hiatal hernia, they're like weight lifters or they're very active. Um, so they always ask, what can I do after I have the procedure? So maybe talk about when did it, if, you know, depending on what they do for work, you know, they can go back and sit at a desk, no problem, but you probably would steer away from them going back to the weight room or something like that right away, <laughs> back to the weight room or something like that right away. Yeah. Listen, you know, you, <laughs> Um, the, 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 I think the caveat that is also sometimes the advice you give to patients, they tend not to follow it to the letter of the law, but, um, anything that's going to sort of increase your, your intra-abdominal pressure. So, you know, squats, uh, heavy weights, that sort of stuff. But, you know, I did a, a tiff last Tuesday on a guy in London before I flew out here and, um, you know, he was running on, on Friday morning and, you know, um, and, you know, he, he sent me an email over the weekend say that, you know, he's OK, other than the fact that he's very hungry. Um, so, uh, you know, most people uh, are able to. Wonderful. Fantastic. I think we have a couple more questions that are popping in on Facebook. So. We just had one from Din asking, are you able to vomit after having the tip to vomit after having? The yeah, so. There's um, one of the things I, I sometimes do is I go on the sort of chat rooms and blogs just to hear what patients are talking about and understand some of their anxieties. And um, you're absolutely right in highlighting that is after the surgical procedure, um, the ability to regurgitate and vomit is is lost, which, it, you know, it seems it seems sort of counterintuitive. You know, vomiting is a reflux, a reflex, sorry, that that you know, your body's trying to expel something that shouldn't be there. Um, and and it, it, sit, it doesn't sit easy with me, not the ability not to be sick. You know, it, 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 it sounds a little bit sort of, um, you know, unusual, not with TIFF. Remember with TIFF, um, even with the best will in the world, we go all the way around um, because we're worse tied down on your endoscope. At best, we'll probably do a wrap that Will be 270 at the best 290 degrees if you're really really good um so you will be able to you'll be able to burp uh and and, and perfect so thank you very much um 
you know, the the only other one that I'm seeing right now was uh, Lynn asking about lifestyle limitations after the TIF. Um, in just in addition to uh, you know the heavier, more active, you know, folks who will weightlift, et cetera. Um, just are there any normal day to day activities that you recommend uh, easing back into, or are you you free to about that, or are you free those? Yeah, no, listen, um, it's an important question. I think I think people mustn't, in the short term, is small meals more often, but also people mustn't fall into to old habits. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of bariatric endoscopy, and when you do a, a weight loss procedure, it's just a, it's a part of the overall sort of a protocol, so to speak, that patients need to engage with and embark on to get the optimum um, uh, output from that procedure. TIF is 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 only part of that process, and you know, eating sensibly, exercising, moderating weight, all of those risk factors that we've talked about, moderating those, they're, they're part of that package. So, I suppose in a, in a long window. Fantastic. Any other questions, Wendy? Not at this point. All right. Well, we're wrapping up, getting close to the end of our uh, program today. Um, before we end, though, uh, Rehan, we just kind of want to give you the opportunity um, to let the people that are watching, you know, know what is the, the number one advice that you would give to patients? I don't know if you know or not, but here in the U.S. Uh, next month, which is coming up soon, a couple days, November, uh, we have GERD Awareness Week, which happens to fall the week of Thanksgiving week. Um, and obviously Thanksgiving is a time for us to get gluttonous to some point, if you will, eating. I mean, it's a big gathering, right, to eat a lot of food and then watch football. So um, it's ironic that GERD Awareness Week is that week, but we are trying to raise more awareness during this time. Um, and to your point, you know, live a healthier lifestyle to help you with your your GERD symptoms. So do you have any words of advice for, I mean, even a patient like me that I'm still on PPIs debating if I should take, get off of them, go see endoscopists. Um, what would your advice be to um, people out there that may be suffering from? Yeah, I think um, it's always nice to sort of circle back to the patient here, isn't it? Because we ultimately, the, the bottom line is it's a common condition and most of you are fine. You're not going to come to any harm. I think that's the, the take home messages. Don't come off this and start freaking out that, you know, that there's there's lots of badness going on in your esophagus. That's not the case. I think there's two points I want to make. One is a more of a sort of societal thing about, um, you know, that, that we, we, we're all very blessed to, to have the opportunities that we have now. And with that comes um, opportunity and changes in behavior that are, are causing a bit of a rise in, in, in eating behaviors and obesity. And that, that the implications for that are not just around reflavovascular health, around you know mental health and physical health. And that's something that we need to all be, be cognizant of and embed into the younger generations. Um, the second point is that have a really low threshold for getting in the face of your doc. If you've got reflux symptoms, you know, go and get heard because, um, you know, I've had a couple of endoscopies. We, we need to change the, the, the stigma around being investigated and we need to give patients every opportunity to exhibit their pathology to us so we can help them because we can now. Um, and so it's just that, you know, if you've got symptoms, something doesn't feel right, it's been happening for a while, you've been popping pills, 
get in the face of your doctor and then say you watch this podcast and you know there was the irritating guy from london who said i should come and see no we like the accent so you know it's a it's different over here in the u.s so it's nice to have a nice to have a a new accent on our TIFF talk. So, um, but again, you know, if you are watching from the UK or, or London um, area, you know, Dr. Uh, Rehan A. Hadri is there. He, you can find him at the um, Cleveland Clinic London. They do have a website, so you can search his information there. He also has his own website. It's www.rjmedical.com. Um, so if you're in that area, uh, you do have help. Um, and there is a, a trained physician that can do TIF. If you are not from that area and you just kind of want to find a TIF trained physician in your area, you can go to girdhelp.com. We do have a physician locator on there and you have the ability to put in your zip code and or search by state and you'll be able to find the physicians that are near you that are TIF trained. So um, before we end, I just um, want to thank everybody again for a joining us tonight or today, depending on where you're tuning in from. Um, Wendy, thank you for for helping us with the questions. Thank you for having me, my pleasure. We appreciate it. And uh, Rehan Hadri, Dr. Rehan Hadri, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate you taking the time um, to educate. Um, the people out there in the UK and London and also here in the US and um, giving us your perspective on on everything. Um, so thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And Not for those all. of you, pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And for and we're just going to have you hang on for one second after we conclude. But to all of you watching, thank you so much for joining us. You can catch us every Tuesdays. I'm um, in around five o'clock U.S. time, um, Central Time. Um, we do have TIFF Talks every Tuesday. So again, thank you for joining us. Have a great day and a great evening, um, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you very much. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.